If you remember when the book opened, the descendants of Jacob were suffering as the slaves of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Since that time, we've seen God call out Moses to lead his people. He sent 10 plagues on the nation of Egypt. He's freed Israel from Pharaoh's tyranny. He brought them through the Red Sea, provided them with miraculous food and water in the, in the wilderness, and has met with them at Mount Sinai to establish a covenant with them. Uh, today, our plan is to look at chapters 25 to 31 and also chapters 35 to 40. That has a lot of ground to cover. And the only thing worse than trying to do 10 chapters in one sermon is like 50 sermons on the bread of the presence and the altars and all those kinds of things. So we're just going to go ahead and we're going to bite it all off in one massive chunk here. We won't be able to read everything in this uh, passage, obviously. Uh, but what we see really in chapters 25 to 31, if you remember chapter 24, uh, the people of Israel ratify their covenant with the Lord. Chapter 25 to 31, the Lord is giving Moses instructions for the, or instructions for the construction of a massive tent. Uh, called the tabernacle. Tabernacle is just a fancy word for tent. We're going to see that's exactly what this is. It's a huge portable tent that the people of Israel can carry with them in the wilderness. You have an interruption there in chapters 32 to 34. Uh, we read that the Israelites begin to worship a golden calf. There's fallout from that event. And then in chapters 35 to 40, we read that the people actually went and did it. They constructed this tabernacle, this tent, just as the Lord had told them. So at the outset, I think we need to stop and just remind ourselves what it is that we, we can do with texts like these, how, how it is that we can try to apply them to our lives. Right, if you think about it, a bunch of people built an elaborate tent in the wilderness on the other side of the world about 3,400 years ago. Right? What, what on earth could that possibly have to do with us and our lives and our struggles and our walk with the Lord? We may remember that when we come to Old Testament narratives, stories in the Old Testament, uh, we try to, try to think through them or apply them to our lives through four different lenses. So we talk about this from time to time. Maybe you remember these lenses. Uh, first, we, we read these kinds of stories through the lens of theology, as I say, we read stories like this, or we read narratives, we read events like this, and we, we look to see what it is we can learn about God, right? So we might see that God is holy as he executes judgment against sinful people, or we might see that God is loving and powerful as he protects his people from their enemies. We might see that God is forgiving as he doesn't always give his people what they deserve, and so as we consider the construction of the tabernacle this morning, we want to see what it is that God is showing us about his character. The second lens we can use is to read these Old Testament stories for ethical instruction. So in our passage for this morning, we see people doing things, taking action, responding to God and his instructions. And so we want to learn from their example. Sometimes it's a good example. Other times it's a bad example. Uh, you may remember that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, the Apostle Paul talks to the church at Corinth, and he's talking about how they ought to live, and he, he, he wants them to look back to the example of the Israelites wandering in the desert. And he says that those things happened, and they're written down for us so that we should learn not to do as they did. Right? There's a way in which it's good to read these Old Testament stories and find moral or ethical instruction for ourselves. The third lens we use to try and apply these kinds of stories to our lives is, is to get a sense of the, the bigger picture of redemptive history. Right? The, the construction of the tabernacle here in the wilderness, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's actually connected to what's come before, and it's connected to what's going to happen later on in the storyline of the Bible. And so as we think about these chapters in Exodus, we want to think about them in relationship to the entire biblical narrative. Right, we want to read passages like this and get a sense of the rhythm and the flow of God's story of redemption. And then finally, we read passages like these through the lens of Christ. And this is where we read the Old Testament differently than our, our Jewish friends. Right, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus tells his disciples that everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Right, Jesus is telling his disciples that the Old Testament is actually all about him. 
when he opens his disciples' minds to understand the scriptures, it's to show them that these Old Testament passages actually are about him. They point forward to his life and death and resurrection and the ultimate spread of the gospel around the world. So as we look at these chapters in Exodus this morning, we want to look to see Jesus in them. We want to see how God saves his people, how God forgives his people, how God wants his people to relate to him, because that ultimately points us to Jesus. So the way I want to try and understand this passage is to look at, at each one of those four lenses uh, briefly. That's going to be my outline. But before we get there, we need to kind of fill in some data points. Let's take a quick sort of 30,000-foot 30, tour of our passage and just see what's in there. It may help you to have a Bible open to Exodus chapter 25 just so you can see what it is I'm pointing to. I'm not going to take time to read most of this. But if you remember, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai. He's been meeting with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. And there in chapter 25, verses 1 to 9, the Lord gives Moses instructions for collecting all of the materials that he's going to need for this building project. He tells him there to gather precious metals and stones, fabrics, hides, wood, oil. Right? And as you go through these sort of construction plans, you realize that there's going to be a vast sum of materials required to, to build this giant portable tent with an altar. And one of the questions that people ask is, where did all this stuff come from? Right After all, they are in the middle of the wilderness. And we're not exactly told. Uh, scholars do think that uh, acacia trees, uh, which were used for the wood to kind of create the, the, the frames and the poles of the, the tabernacle, did actually grow in this area. But it seems like the most logical explanation for the rest of it is that these materials came when the Israelites plundered Egypt back in chapter 12. If you remember there in chapter 12, we're told that the Lord put it on the hearts of the Egyptians to load the people of Israel up with treasure of all sorts as they were leaving town, uh, gold, silver, clothing. So it's most likely that all of those things have been carried out into the wilderness, and now the people of Israel uh, are bringing them to construct the tabernacle. There in verses 10 to 22 of chapter 25, you have instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark is a wooden box that is overlaid with gold. The purpose was to, was to hold a copy of the law that Mo God is going to give to Moses. Uh, over this box, we see there the instructions are that, that they're to craft two cherubim, two sort of divine angels, uh, or heavenly angels rather, uh, facing one another. Uh, between them, between these two cherubim, uh, was a cover for the ark. There in verse 22, the Lord says that he's going to meet with his people and he will speak to them from between these two cherubim. Uh, if you will, the, the cover on this box, on this ark, it, it's meant to sort of act like something like a throne for God. The ark, the box itself, is sort of his footstool. So other places in scripture, for example, in Psalm 80, verse 1, they, they, the Lord is referred to as him who is enthroned between the cherubim, right? This box with two sort of massive angels on either side. It was something like a throne uh, for the Lord, Moving on to the next section there in verses 23 to 30, there are instructions for a long table overlaid with pure gold that would hold special bread and special gold plates and pitchers and bowls. At the end of chapter 25, you have instructions for seven golden lampstands that are fashioned to, to look something like uh, almond tree branches. It's not until chapter 26 that you actually get around to a description of the tabernacle itself, the actual tent. Right? It's basically a series of curtains and frames that are assembled together to make a tent. I think it's important to note that what we have here in Exodus is not a sort of fully rendered set of architectural drawings. Right? You read there in verse 30 of chapter 26 that God says to Moses, Then you shall erect the tabernacle, this tent, according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain." Moses seems to have access to more details about what the Lord is thinking than we get here, right? Because if you just tried to construct something based on what we see in Exodus, it'd be really hard to figure out exactly what it is the Lord's pointing to. But Moses had seen, Moses knew what it was supposed to look like. Uh, when you put it all together, it seems that the tabernacle was, was to be made up of 10 linen curtains, sort of woven through with colorful yarn and, and cherubim worked into them. Right, so there's sort of these angelic figures on the, on the walls of the tent. You can see that in, in verse 1 of chapter 26. There's an outer layer of curtains that were covered by then 
further layers of curtains that were made out of animal skins. You see that in chapter 26, verses 7 and 14. There were frames for these curtains to kind of hold them taut, made of acacia wood. Uh, and so you wound up with this sort of, when you put it all together, what seems to be a large rectangular tent, probably about 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. And within that large rectangle is a sort of smaller rectangle made out of veils, probably about 30 to 15 by 15 feet called the holy place, right? And then within that holy place, you actually have a much smaller uh, place separated off by a thick veil. You have a square that's about 15 by 15 called the most holy place. So you have a big rectangle with a small rectangle and a square in the middle. Uh, and the most holy places we're going to see is the home of the Ark of the Covenant. The most holy place is where God will sort of set up his throne room. Right? This square is particularly important because that's where God is going to meet with Israel. So in terms of a layout, think of the tabernacle in sort of a, a large tent divided into three rooms. Chapter 27 begins with instructions for an altar on which uh, offerings can be sacrificed. It's made of bronze. It's put in the sort of outer courtyard, that largest rectangle. And this chapter concludes, chapter 27, with instructions about the kind of oil that's meant to be used in the lamps and the responsibility that the priests have to keep the, the lamps burning at all times. Chapter 28, you get uh, a discussion of the priest's garments, right? You have instructions for the clothes that they were to wear when serving the Lord in the tabernacle. There in verse 4 of chapter 28, you see that they need a breast piece. They need an ephod, a sort of sleeveless covering, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. And what we see is there's a lot of symbolism in those sort of special garments that Aaron and his sons were to wear as they served as priests. So on that ephod was uh, the names of each of the tribes of Israel engraved on two onyx stones. You see that in verse 9 of chapter 28. On the breast piece are, are 12 jewels with the names of the tribes of Israel on them. Right, the idea in both cases is that when Aaron goes in before the Lord to serve as the high priest, he is bearing with him the names of the, the people of Israel. He's taking, as it were, Israel into the presence of God. He's going into God's presence on their behalf. There in verse 29 of Exodus 28, we read this. The Lord says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart, when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. In a similar way, the turban that Aaron was to wear uh, had a plaque on it that, that says, holy to the Lord. We see an explanation of that plaque in chapter 28, verse 38. The Lord says, it shall be on Aaron's forehead, this plaque saying, holy to the Lord. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. See, the priest was accepted by God. He was designated as holy before the Lord. And as such, as a holy person, he was qualified to bear the sins of the people and to make sacrifices for them. Chapter 29, we have instructions about the sacrifices that had to be made in order to consecrate the priests, to make them holy. There are three sacrifices we read about there that need to be offered in the process. The whole sort of ordination of the priests was to take about seven days, right? And you can understand why that's necessary. Aaron, in and of himself, isn't qualified to wear that, that plaque that says holy to the Lord. He needs to have his sins dealt with and taken away. And so the Lord gives them a ceremony whereby offering sacrifices, the priests can be made holy. Chapter 30 picks up another discussion of the tabernacle. In verses 1 to 10, you have instructions for an altar of incense that's to be kept in front of the curtain that separated off the most holy place. So the sort of second rectangle, the, the holy place, would be filled with this sort of sweet-smelling smoke. There in verses 11 to 16, there's a section about collecting money from the people for the support of the tabernacle, right, whenever there's a census. And then chapter 30 concludes with instructions for wash basins and oils and incense that are to be used in the tent. Chapter 31 begins with a discussion of two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, who have been uniquely gifted by the Lord for the task of creating all of these instruments and tents and altars. We're told there in verse 3 of chapter 31 that these men were filled with the Spirit of God in order to do this work well. So God is empowering his people to do this work his way. And then 
In verses 12 to uh, 17, you have a reminder about the Sabbath. Uh, the Lord reminds the people that they are to do this work, but they're still to, rem- to, to keep the Sabbath day holy. The, the seventh day is a day set aside. They're not to work. In verse 18, this chapter ends. The Lord gives Moses the two tablets with the law on it, inscribed by God himself. These are the tablets that are meant to go in the Ark of the Covenant. So then the golden calf happens in chapter 32. We're back kind of where we skipped over. So we've skipped over all those chapters. We jumped in back in chapter 32. Uh, We've seen chapter 32 and 33 and 34 uh, last week. When you get to chapter 35, what you see really all the way through chapter 40 is a report, oftentimes word for word, exactly the same as what we saw back in chapters 25 to 31, letting us know that the people did exactly what the Lord told them to do. Chapter 35 starts with a reminder about the Sabbath. That's where we left off in chapter 31. In verses 4 to 29, the people bring their gifts. They employ their skills to make the materials for the construction of the tent. Chapter 36, we read that that Bezalel and Aholiab and the other craftsmen get to work making the tent. Chapter 37, they make the ark and the table and the, the lamps and the altar for incense. In chapter 38, they make another altar in the basin that the Lord required. Chapter 39, they create the inner court and the priestly garments. Then in chapter 40, the tent is finally assembled. Everything's put in place. And we read at the very end of the book of Exodus, there in uh, Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So that's how the book of Exodus ends. The tabernacle is built this sort of mobile tent where God will meet with his people. If you remember, uh, last week we saw that there was this tent of meeting where Moses would go outside the camp and meet with God, but now God has established his presence with his people. Now the tabernacle is called the tent of meeting because Aaron and the other priests are going to carry, as it were, the people of Israel into this tent to meet with the Lord. A cloud descends. The glory of the Lord fills it. And it's so intense, it seems at first, that Moses actually can't even go in. It's not until uh, what we read earlier in our service in Leviticus chapter 9, right? In Leviticus 8, Moses consecrates Aaron as a priest using the instructions that we have in our passage here in Exodus. And then finally, in in Leviticus chapter 9, they're able to actually go in to the tabernacle and offer sacrifices. Okay, so that's it. That's a 100-mile-an-hour tour of the tabernacle. I'd encourage you to go back, if you haven't already, read the details for yourself. It's, a, it's, it's rich and encouraging. But as I mentioned before, our interest this morning is not so much in the construction of the tabernacle per se, but rather what we are to learn from the instructions that the Lord gives. And so let's look at those four things that I mentioned earlier, those four lenses, and try to consider this passage through those. Uh, First, I want to start by thinking about how this story fits into the larger story of the Bible, this history of redemption. And I think what we're meant to see here is that the tabernacle is a kind of new Garden of Eden. The instructions given here for the tabernacle seem to make it clear that, that this is kind of a new paradise on earth. You see, when God created the world, he placed the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in a flourishing garden, a place where he was present with them, a place where all of their needs were met, everything was as it should be. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sin and death and suffering entered into the world, and we read that they were expelled from God's presence. They were removed from the garden. Cherubim were stationed at the entrance to the garden to prevent them from coming back in. And mankind has been alienated from God ever since. And and what we see in these instructions for the tabernacle is a sign that God is remaking the world, that he's going to restore mankind, uh, he's going to restore to mankind what was lost in their fall into sin. That might not be immediately obvious as we read these chapters, but I think if you look closely at the instructions, you'll see it. A couple of things stand out in particular. 
First, uh, the very sort of structure of the instructions is meant to call to mind the creation account in Genesis. So these chapters, uh, these instructions are broken up into seven sections. And each one is prefaced by the phrase, the Lord said to Moses. So you see that six times. You see it in chapter 25, verse 1. You see it in chapter 30, verse 11. You see it again in chapter 30, verse 17. Then in chapter 30, verse 22. Then in chapter 30, verse 34. And then chapter 31, verse 1. That's six times you read, the Lord said to Moses. And then you get instructions about how something's meant to be made. Then there's a seventh final time, chapter 31, verse 13. Again, the Lord said to Moses. And what's the command there? Keep the Sabbath. It seems like the structure is is trying to kind of clearly help us draw a connection between the creation account and the building of the tabernacle. Both have sort of six periods of activity, right? Begun by the word of the Lord, right? The Lord speaks and, and things are made. And then there's a seventh day, a day of rest. If you look there at the end of chapter 39 in verse 43, after all the preparations are finished, after everything's been made, it says Moses saw all the work. And behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. It seems like that calls to mind the Lord's own pleasure in each day of creation, doesn't it? Right, so in Genesis, we read that the Lord created and then he looked out and it was just the way he wanted it to be and so he saw that it was good. Uh, Here, Moses carries out the Lord's instructions. Right, the Lord speaks, the people of Israel sort of scurry into action, they do it just the way the Lord said to do it and Moses looks out and it is pleasing to him. He He blesses them. Right, the creation of the tabernacle it feels like the the creation of the Garden of Eden, right? When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, they were sent out to the east, we read in Genesis chapter three. Again, with with angelic warriors placed at the the gates to keep them from coming back. And and these instructions for the tabernacle make it clear that, that when you came into the tabernacle, you were to come in from the east. You, you started in the, that's the east, I think, right? So you'd start out there, and you'd work your way in this direction. Right, we put the stage in the right place. This is the Holy of Holies here, right? You had, to, you had to come in from the east. You had to pass through sort of gates with cherubim on them. And, and only then could you come into God's presence. It, it's like going back into the Garden of Eden. I think you have other hints here as well. Again, the ordination of the priest takes seven full days. We're calling the days of creation. You have the seven lampstands in the holy place that are made in the shapes of all things blossoming, flourishing trees. Right? Some scholars suggest that they're meant uh, to serve as kind of a stylized uh, version of the tree of life. Right? All of the tabernacle suggests a creation project. In Genesis chapter 2, we're told that the Garden of Eden was full of things like gold and onyx. And here in the tabernacle, we have those materials sort of featuring prominently. Right? The, the tabernacle was made up of the same stuff that the Garden of Eden was made of. And then you just simply have the idea of the order and, and the precision and the, the specificity of the tense dimensions. Right? The, the, the picture of the tabernacle is order in the midst of chaos. Right? In a crazy world, the tabernacle is precise and exact. Right? That's, that's the essence of creation where God parts the chaos and he he creates beauty and order in the midst of it. And so I think we're meant to see the tabernacle as something of a recreation project. Right here in the middle of a horribly fallen world, in exile from the Garden of Eden, the Israelites, as it were, get another crack at it. God is beginning this sort of new act of creation, this, this building project that creates a tiny little slice of heaven here on earth, just like what we lost in the fall. Because I think that's really what the tabernacle is meant to be, a piece of heaven on earth. That's what we read in in Hebrews chapter 8, 
verses five to six. I think what Seth said earlier in the service is so true. The book of Hebrews is so helpful in trying to understand sort of what's going on in these Old Testament passages. It really is God's sort of divine explanation of what's going on. And in Hebrews chapter eight, verses five to six, we see this. Speaking of the priests and their ministry, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, so that's talking about the tabernacle here in our passage, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Moses is meant to follow God's directions because God is in a sense making a small copy of what's in heaven for the Israelites, right? The author of Hebrews says that it's a, it's a copy of the heavenly things. The tabernacle is meant to be a slice of heaven. Even more than the construction of it, it's heaven because that's where God's presence is. Right in Exodus chapter 40, verse 2, again, this tent is called the tent of meeting because this is where God is going to be with his people. This is how God's people are restored to his presence on a daily basis. Right, that's the key to this whole project. The whole point of this tabernacle it is for the Lord to dwell with his people. So in Exodus 25, verse 8, the Lord says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. All right, brothers and sisters, that's the point. The tabernacle is God dwelling in the midst of his people. And I think in that way, the tabernacle fits perfectly into the larger story of God's redemption. God made the world when he created it as a paradise where he could dwell with humans. As Mike helped us to think about last week, the presence of God is the thing that you and I and each one of these Israelites and everyone else outside these doors today was made for, right? God alone is the source of all beauty, all love, all joy, all happiness. Everything your heart longs for is wrapped up in the presence of God. Every good desire that you have is, is satisfied in the presence of God. But we fumbled away that privilege when we sinned. We were cast out of God's presence. But God called out the nation of Israel as part of his project to restore what was lost. And brothers and sisters, that's not the end of the story. It's not just creation, fall, tabernacle. No, there, there's, a, there's a far greater sort of consummation coming to all of this. God has a plan to restore us to an even greater experience of his presence one day. That's what we read about at the end of the Bible's story. In Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friend, I don't know if you know it or not, but the one thing you want more than anything else is to be in the presence of God, is for him to dwell with you, for you to live before his face. What happens when God dwells with his people? Every tear is wiped away. Death is no more. There's no mourning, no crying, no pain. Right? All of those things belong to what could be called the, the former things, and they passed away. Right? John, who wrote Revelation, saw that so clearly that God is creating an experience of us, for us of his presence that will satisfy every longing, that will make everything right. So the tabernacle narrative here isn't just a story about lamps and altars and sort of weird-looking curtains. It's a reminder to us that despite our sin, despite our weakness, despite our failure, in his love, God wants to dwell with us forever. That's how the tabernacle fits into the storyline of the Bible. Second, and here I want to be brief, we want to look at what we can learn from the example of the Israelites in this passage. 
the Lord has this wonderful plan to create the tabernacle, but it does involve his people taking action. So there in chapter 25, verses 1 to 2, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people that they take for me a contribution. For every man whose heart moves him, uh, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So these offerings to create the tabernacle were meant to be freely given from the heart. The idea is that the people of Israel would be delighted to give their material possessions, which, by the way, the Lord had given them to begin with, right? The Lord put it on the heart of the Egyptians to load up their hands. So the people of Israel now have their hands loaded with this God-given treasure, right? And they're delighted to give it back to honor the Lord and to facilitate his presence among them. Right? That, in light of that, it makes what's going to happen in chapter 32 with the creation of the golden calf all the more heinous. Right, because in, in, in that event, in chapter 32, the people do exactly what God wants them to do. They bring all of their treasure. They, they offer it as an offering. But they do it in the service of evil. But as we saw last week, the Lord was merciful. The Lord extended kindness to them. And so we read in Exodus chapter 35, in verses uh, 20 to 29, then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun it with her hands. And they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their, their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. So give to the building fund. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Feels like I had to work that in somewhere. Right? I, I think what we actually have here is this beautiful picture of repentance. Right? You see that phrase repeated over and over again in verse 21. Everyone whose heart stirred him. Verse 21 again. Everyone whose spirit moved him. Verse 22. All who were of a willing heart. Verse 26. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill. Verse 29. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose hearts moved them. Right? This was not coerced or reluctant service. Right? Moses even calls it a free will offering to the Lord. These were not gifts squeezed out by a sense of guilt or duty. Now, if you think about it, these were people who had sinned grievously, who, who, had, who had made a, an idol and worshipped it, despite the incredible deliverance they had received. But, but they were also people who had experienced God's mercy and grace, people that God didn't strike down. Uh, in their sin. And so now they find their hearts moved to respond in generosity and to use their gifts and their skills in the Lord's service. And so I do think there's something of an example for us to learn from here. Experiencing God's grace changes our hearts. It moves us to obedience, to generosity. It makes our service a joy. And so it could be that that repentance in our life looks like taking things that you used to use to serve yourself and your own pleasures and now using them joyfully to serve the Lord and his purposes. Okay, so for the sake of time, moving on to the third thing for us to see, and that is what does the tabernacle teach us about God himself? A couple of things I think present themselves immediately. Right, we've, show, we've seen already the tabernacle shows us that God wants to be present with his people. We wouldn't assume that that's true unless God revealed it to us. 
It's also not too hard to see from these designs that God is beautiful and creative, right? He is the one who designed this sort of spectacular looking tabernacle. He's the one who inspired the craftsmen to do the work well, right? The picture that emerges in these chapters is that the tent was supposed to be stunning to look at with, with cherubs and colorful yarns and gold and jewels and bronze and silver, right? With light and smoke and incense, right? The, the idea here is that reflects something of God's character, right? Standard white apartment walls will not do the trick, right? If the Lord is going to sort of dwell, as it were, in a tent, it's got to be breathtaking in its beauty because he is breathtaking in his beauty. But I do think the main thing we're meant to see about the design of the tabernacle is God's holiness, right? The whole enterprise is set up to keep sinners, to keep anything associated with death or uncleanness or, or sin, right? To keep all of that separated from the presence of God. Again, you see that in the divisions of the tabernacle. You have the sort of outer area, more widely accessible. You have the, the holy place then into which only uh, priests can enter. And then you finally have the most holy place with the ark where the Lord dwells between the cherubim, where only sort of one special priest is supposed to go once a year. And the point is clear. You cannot come near a holy God. Right? There is literally a massive curtain keeping you away from God's presence in your sin. Right? And as you proceed through these different parts of the tabernacle, you see that the furnishings change accordingly. In the outer courtyard, the altar and the instruments, everything's made of bronze. You know, nice, but third place, right? In the holy place, everything's made of silver. But once you're in the holy of holies, it's all gold. Right? It's, a, it's a picture of God's supreme worth, his supreme holiness, right? The structure points to God's holiness, right? Even the names of the sections, right? The place where God's presence dwells, it's not simply the holy place. No, no, it's the, it's the most holy place. It's the holy of holies. And friends, this creates a problem. This really creates the central problem in the Old Testament. If you want to understand the Old Testament, it really all boils down to this one seemingly insoluble problem. God's presence is great. It is the point of our salvation. It is what makes paradise a place where you want to be. It's what makes heaven so delightful. But God's presence is not without its complications because God is holy and his people are not. God is separate from sin, but Israel, well, they're a bunch of sinners. And so if God is going to be present with them, something needs to give. It seems like either God needs to be less holy than he really is, or the Israelites need to be way holier than they are. And this is why they had sacrifices for sins, right? This is why our passage shows us that even though the priests, even the priests themselves needed to go through elaborate rituals where they would be consecrated, cleansed, made holy in God's sight. And so in a strange way, the tabernacle both encourages the people of Israel with the presence of God, but also it's there to remind them every day of their sin, Right, as animal after animal was slaughtered, as blood was splashed against the altar, right, as smoke rose up, there was a, a moment by moment reminder that we are sinners, that, that coming into contact with a holy God means death. Right? God is present with them, but they can't come near without an elaborate system of sacrifices and washings and priests. It's meant to remind the Israelites that the God who is with them, the God who delivered them from slavery in Egypt, this God to whom they belong is perfectly holy. I think that brings us then to the fourth and final sort of lens through which to see the tabernacle, and that is how it speaks to us of Jesus. Because I said that that problem of the Old Testament, how God could be present with his people, but also holy, it only seems to be a problem that has no solution. But what we see when we get to the New Testament is that God actually has a very good solution, and that is the Lord Jesus. Jesus fulfills the meaning of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the way for God to be present among us, but because of our sinfulness, because of, our, uh, because of his holiness, there is still a lot of distance, right? The tabernacle is great. God is there with his people, but, but it could be better, right? There's just still a lot of space between us and God, 
The holy place is, is shrouded in smoke. The holy of holies is, is curtained off behind a thick veil. Right? You weren't even allowed in without killing an animal. But friends, the good news is the tabernacle was not the end of the story. As great as it was that God was present in the Israelite camp, he is not content, it turns out, to keep us even at that distance, relating to him from behind animal carcasses and smoke, from the other side of the curtain. God actually wants more for us. And so he came to us. God the Father sent his son to become one of us, to take on human flesh and to live among us. John's gospel reflects on this, referring to the Lord Jesus as the eternal word of God. We read in John chapter 1, And the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word that John uses there that's translated in our English versions as dwelt, right? Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt, it, it is a, the Greek verb that means to set up a tent. Or if you don't mind me verbing the word here, to tabernacle amongst us. Right? John is showing us that when the Son of God took on flesh, he is fulfilling the ultimate purpose of the tabernacle. Jesus is God dwelling with his people. You might think, well, that would be great if I lived 2,000 years ago in, in Jerusalem because then I could have seen Jesus. But he's not here anymore. Right? He died. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And so, and so now there's no tabernacle. There's no presence of God with us. Is there no place where God dwells with his people since Jesus isn't here physically right now? Well, actually, shockingly, as the Bible goes on, there is still a tabernacle. Or more accurately, or the way the New Testament describes it, a temple. Right? The, the temple, when it's created in Jerusalem later, it basically is just a permanent version of the tabernacle. Right? They're, both, they're both kind of set up the same. The, the point of them is the same. But that, that temple in Jerusalem, it, it no longer is in operation. But the New Testament authors tell us that God is still indeed present in this world. Not actually in a building, in a temple not actually in a portable tent that could be carried around, but directly with his people. So in John's gospel, we read this. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. See, just earlier in John 14, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to heaven to prepare a place for them. And that's great. That's what we want, life in God's presence. But then Jesus says more. He says, he says, when you come to Christ, when you respond to his grace and mercy, like the Israelites responded to God's forgiveness in the wilderness, when you turn from your old way of life and, and, and put your trust in him and love him and follow him, Jesus says that he and even his heavenly father come and make their home in you, with you. Right? That's fulfilled in the gift of the Holy Spirit God dwelling in, present with each and every believer. So the Apostle Paul can ask the Corinthian believers rhetorically in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Friends, if you're tracking through this creation of the tabernacle here, this is an incredible blessing. You don't need to go somewhere to be in God's presence because he goes with you if you're in Christ. But it's not just the individual believer for whom this is true. Because earlier in that same letter to the church at Corinth, Paul speaks to the whole congregation and he says this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you, you all, are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? Friends, if you ask the apostle Paul, where does where can we find God's presence in this world? He would say that it's right here, in this church, not the building. Right? We don't need a sanctuary. We don't need a holy place where God can dwell and we come to him anymore. Because 
Church, you are the sanctuary now. You are the temple. You are the place where, where God lives. So we can meet in this building. We can meet in a bigger new building. We can meet out in a field. It really doesn't matter. This isn't a sanctuary. This isn't a tabernacle. It's not a temple. It's a building, right? You all, we together are the tabernacle. We are the temple. We are the place where God is dwelling. The building isn't where the action is anymore. God's presence is no longer a matter of, of tents and temples, because the church is his temple, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are the tabernacle. The things that were pictured for us in the tent are true now of us. But again, how can that be? Because it's not like you and I are less sinful than the Israelites. Right? How can God dwell in us by his Holy Spirit if we are sinful people? Well, the answer is shockingly, he does it by virtue of the death of his son. Jesus offered his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He turned the, the shame and the cruelty of a Roman cross into a, a version of the, the, the bronze altar in the tabernacle, where he offered up not a, a goat or a bull, but he offered up his own life in the place of his people. As Jesus died, we read in Matthew 27, 51, that the great curtain in the temple, that sort of massive, elaborate veil that was meant to keep sinners out of the presence of God, as Jesus died, it was torn in two. There is no longer a barrier. The presence of God is no longer roped off with caution tape, keeping you at a distance. That curtain that used to keep you away is now an open door. For all to come to God through faith in Christ. The author of Hebrews speaks of it this way. In chapter 9 that we read earlier, he talks about the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. Seth read that for us earlier in our service. Then in chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says this. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. We have confidence to enter the holy places. Like, what? If you, if you read these chapters in Exodus, the, the people of Israel, their experience of going into God's presence, into the holy places, was not confidence. Right? It was, it was, it was sacrifice. It was smoke. It, it was ritual. It was, it was hoping everything turned out well. Right? You see in, in just a bit further on in Leviticus, in Leviticus 10, right after the chapter we read, you, you see that some people worship the Lord the wrong way and they wind up dead. But the author of Hebrews says here, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Right? Because he's opened a way through the curtain. Brothers and sisters, the barrier between us and God was, was ripped apart when Jesus was ripped apart for us. And so now we have confidence to draw near. Our sin has been dealt with. Uh, we are made blameless by the presence of Christ, or by the death of Christ. And friends, the best way for us to respond to that good news is to come to the Lord's table in faith. Because it's here that we come to commune with Jesus, who is present with us, who has made his home in us by his spirit. Jesus invites his people to come. Not just one of us, not just a high priest, not just once, but he invites all of us to come, to, to remember, to celebrate, to reaffirm the confidence that we have in his sacrifice for us. You see, when we take the bread representing his broken body, when we drink the cup that represents his shed blood, when we take those things in faith, we get to enjoy the benefits of Christ's death for us. We get to experience the thing that we were made for and meant for. Communion, friendship, fellowship with God. Now, maybe you're thinking, look, I, I can't come to the table. Not today. Not this week. I've messed up. I've sinned again. I've done things that I, that I sat here last Sunday promising I wasn't going to do again. I haven't, I haven't grown. I haven't changed enough. I've worshipped golden calves. I've looked to sin for joy and life, the things I was supposed to get from God. 
So I just need to sit this one out. I need to try harder, do better, show God that I'm serious, and then maybe next week. But Christian, if that's what you're thinking, can you see you really haven't understood the lesson of the tabernacle at all? What you've done is erect a barrier between you and God, a barrier that Christ died to destroy. The tabernacle was meant to teach you something, that that very real curtain, the, the way blocking your entrance into the presence of God, it was never meant to continue on forever. But Jesus ripped it apart through his death and resurrection. And so if you are in him, you can come to the table. In fact, you must come to the table. No one comes to the table because they're worthy. You come because he's worthy. Because he calls sinners like us to come and to be with him. But friend, if you've not turned from your sins, if you've not put your trust in Jesus, then you shouldn't actually participate in this part of our service in terms of coming forward and taking the bread and the cup. That's not because we're not glad that you're here. We're actually very glad you're here. You're very welcome. But there's actually no hope to be found in this bread and in this cup unless you've trusted in Christ. Let me tell you, there is no magic here. There, there's no benefit to be gained simply from eating a piece of bread and drinking a little bit of wine. Right? Sinful people like us, we cannot come to God on our own. And so you cannot come to the table while you're still in your sins. But friend, the good news is there's an open invitation to you. An invitation to turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. In the power of his death and resurrection to take away your sins and to cleanse you. And friend, should you put your trust in him, you'd be most welcome to celebrate with us in the future. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, uh, we believe, uh, I'm sorry, but you're not a member of this particular local church. Uh, we believe that the Lord's Supper is for all who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, who've demonstrated that by obeying Christ's command to be baptized, who are connected in membership to a church that believes and preaches the same gospel that you've heard this morning. So if you're a baptized member of a, of a gospel-preaching church and you're allowed to take the Lord's Supper there, then we welcome you to come and celebrate with us as a sign of the great unity we have with everyone who names the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul cautions the church to examine themselves before they come to the table. We come to the table not sinlessly but in faith. We come to the table not sinlessly, but also not as rank hypocrites. And so let's take a moment now to reflect on our lives, to genuinely confess and repent of our sins. We'll have a moment of silent prayer and reflection, and then I'll lead us in a corporate prayer of confession. Let's pray together.